Today on Tips from the Top Floor, I'll talk with film director Jeremiah Chechik. The Wide Angle book is now available in Chinese and I bought over half a terabyte of microSD cards for only $10. This episode is supported by Nations Photo Lab. Refresh your wall decor with Nations Photo Lab. Choose from classic photo prints, museum quality canvas prints, breathtakingly vibrant metal prints, rustic wood print wraps and so much more. Ordering online is easy so you can turn your Instagrams into instant memories that will last a lifetime. Make every moment matter and try Nations Photo Lab today. Head to nationsphotolab.com and use code TOP15, T-O-P-1-5, for 15% off your order. This is Tips from the Top Floor, episode 870 for July the 4th, 2019. Tips from the top, from the top floor, tips from the top, all right, from the top floor. Hey, hello and welcome. It's Chris Marquardt. You're listening to Tips from the Top Floor. We are back with another episode, 870. And uh, yeah, let me see. Oh. <laughs> big news. Well, maybe not big for you, but big for me. Um, this is the sound of a book. And this book is the Wide Angle Photography book, which you are probably at least familiar with. And um, that book has started as a German book. Uh, and then it was translated to English and it's been out in uh, bookstores and on Amazon and other places uh, under the publisher Rocky Nook. And now it's come out in Chinese, which, yeah, has been translated and is now uh, with the publisher Gotop or G-O-T-O-P. I have no idea how you pronounce that. Um, and it's out in for the Taiwanese market. So they translated it to Chinese. It's on the Taiwanese market. And I just got a copy of it, which, again, this is mind-blowing. I mean, just a few years ago, I was, I was, yeah, I, I was mind-blown that that a book of mine would be translated to English, and I'm still kind of uh, in awe that that was possible. And now it's in Taiwanese or in Chinese, and that's just... <sighs> this makes me very, very proud. And it, it, not that I could check if it's well translated. At least with English, I can do that. So I hope they did a good job with the translation. I have no doubt that they did. But um, if Chinese is your first language, then yeah, have a look. Uh, it's out there in Taiwan. And that's awesome. So let's see. Oh, yeah. Um, on the last episode, you was it the last second last? I think the last one. Um, I talked about the the Raspberry Pi based HomeKit compatible camera that I built and that I'm using to take a daily snapshot. That's coming along nicely. Snapshots every day. Um, but I also did a Patreon supporter exclusive. So if you're on Patreon, um, you might have already heard it. Just in case you're, <laughs> you 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 want to nerd out. Um, because I recorded a, a detailed account on what I did and how to do this to make a camera like this. So, yeah, check that out. It's on Patreon, exclusive for supporters. Oh, and then, uh, speaking of Raspberry Pi, here is Travis. Hi, Chris. It's Travis from Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for the great show. I just wanted to really make a comment Um you were talking about on your show uh, last week about using a Raspberry Pi. 
um, with uh, a camera to um, for surveillance reasons. Um, I just want to say, um, my friends and myself, we actually used a Raspberry Pi with uh, a camera module and we turned it into a photo booth. Uh, just with a Canon selfie printer, we could print the images and we could also broadcast it over Wi-Fi and um, people could download the photos onto their phone. And it worked really well, it was a lot of fun and we learnt a lot. Anyway, thanks for the show and um, yeah, keep doing what you do. Bye. Yeah, isn't it awesome what you can do with these little computers? I mean, just imagine this Raspberry Pi. It's a little board with everything you need for a computer on it, and it's like thirty-five bucks. So yeah, this is uh, this is great. And if you have the if you have the the uh, the nerd potential, then there's almost no limits to what you can do. Ah, things are awesome. Um, okay. Uh, before we talk about the memory card fraud thing that I came across, um, that'll be in the second half of the show, let me introduce you to someone who um, is, well, who you will hear a bit more often in the future, uh, at least over on the uh, the sister podcast of this one, The Future of Photography, uh, the one that I do with Adrian Stock every week, where we explore where things are going with photography. Um, now, as you might remember, we called for new voices on the show. We did a little casting process and quite a few people have answered our call and sent in recordings and a big, huge thank you for that. That's awesome to, well, not not just to get the validation that there are actually people out there listening, which is cool in itself. No, but just to, yeah, just to, to see how much interest people have in discussing these kind of things. And... As a result of that process, which is over now, we haven't just found one person, we have found two. And the first voice is uh, Jeremiah Chechik. He's one of the two new voices on the future of photography. And of course, the second voice will also soon come on the show. A bit, a bit more patience, but um, yeah, there are reasons why that's taken a bit longer. Um About Jeremiah, he comes from photography. He That's what he started uh, as, as a photographer. He got into fashion photography early on. He also has a career as a Hollywood film director. So uh, with his interest in photography and his job that he's doing, um, he's very close to the latest technical developments. So that's a good addition to the show. And uh, he also has quite a few... Um, he's seen quite a few things in his time and uh, you will probably even know a few of the things that he's directed. And he's also doing a lot of television now. Um, and I probably didn't even get all of that right, so I better let Jeremiah talk himself. Jeremiah, welcome to Tips from the Top Floor. Well, thank you. Good to be here. Uh, so you are uh, one new voice on... The future of photography, and uh, so so. Just just to recap for the listeners, we've done this casting process. We've gone through uh, quite a few people who have written and said, "Yeah, I think this would be something I'd love to do." And uh, you were one of them, and uh, you sent a voicemail, and it sounded interesting, especially the moment I put your name into Google. <laughs> it was like, oh. I think I know some of the things that this guy has done. So why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us just a little bit about where you're coming from. Well, um, I started uh, my uh, process 
of image making as a uh, lithographer using stone lithography and traditional etching. Uh, that led me to uh, taking photographs to be used either as reference for painting uh, or to apply to those stones and experiment that way. And, and over the course of several years, got involved in uh, holography early days with lasers. And uh, eventually my love of photography overtook uh, my kind of scientific bent, uh, at least temporarily. And um, I began in earnest to kind of really study the kind of all aspects of printing. And through that, I, I, I did get a job at uh, the University of Toronto, where I had moved from Montreal um, in the Jurassic period when dinosaurs ruled the <laughs> earth. And um, uh, I found myself working in the darkroom printing archival uh, plates for the university in their rare books, and eventually the main printer quit, and I was able to take over the darkroom and got very spoiled, but uh, really developed a big love of printing. Uh, and my photography eventually led me to um, advertising. Uh, I had a show, a solo show at a gallery, and I was... Uh, in a way, discovered by a big executive or a high-level executive at McCann Erickson, who had offered me a uh, a job uh, shooting, I forget what it was, uh, something that was very similar to the style that I was working uh, with artistically. And uh, I thought, wow, I can get paid and do this at the same time. And that led to uh, some fashion work and eventually was sent to Italy and was discovered by Italian Vogue. And I worked there for many years in Milan and shooting all over the place. Uh, and then came back to New York where I continued shooting and um, then kind of made a, a, a dramatic leap into directing commercials. And that led me to making movies and that led me to doing television, but I never really stopped taking pictures, making pictures and printing pictures. And now, uh, over the last several years, I've, I've kind of decreased the amount of time I'm spending on set, increased the time I'm kind of uh, developing projects, and really focused my attention on where I began, which is really kind of coming uh, really uh, together with what I do and have done artistically. So your your origin is in photography. So do you mm. see do you see your director's career more as a as an intermediate phase there or I mean you're still doing well, it, right? <laughs> yes, uh you know when you're directing there's uh, there certainly are uh, a lot of factors. I because of where I came from have a penchant to tell stories that are visually uh exciting. Uh, though I never want those visuals to uh, overwhelm the emotional or characterization of the uh, people within the story that I'm telling. So there is a balance there. On the other hand, um, I'm always inspired by extraordinary, uh, great uh, DPs, camera 
men and women who and I've had the opportunity of work with some of the legends uh, over the course of my life and have learned a great deal about lighting composition and, and how they approach it. So the dynamic of that relationship, the DP and the director uh, is something that is a, a very exciting um, piece of the overall puzzle. And often you get to make images that are greater than the sum of the parts with that. Do you do you see that collaboration? Um, it, okay, you, you learn something from a, from a good director of photography. Um, is is there often a back and forth or a tug of war between the two of you because you are a photographer, they are a photographer, or is it more that the the sum is greater than the individual parts? I I have had uh, experiences. They're very rare where a uh, director of photography wanted to take a um, what I would consider an easy way out. A, uh, um, possibly a simpler choice of lenses just to save time, which is always a big issue when you're uh, on a film set. There's time management is extraordinarily important. Um, and I'll disagree with that and put my foot down and say, no, we cannot use this kind of lens because it has a different emotional quality to it. We need to stick with another kind of lens. And that, that may create problems for adjusting the lighting and then a discussion will ensue. But it's rare that that happens. Normally, I'm working with cameramen I know well. Uh, I enjoy working with them and they with me because I'm pushing them to go beyond what they like and they're pushing me. And so it's very, very exciting. Um, where I do find it absolutely fascinating is uh, there are many ways to light a scene. There are many different roads to take to um, creating what one's intentions are in that scene. Uh, also remembering that, you know, in film, we move around. So the lighting has to adjust and reflect the dynamic of character and actor motion. Uh, and what comes first uh, as a rule of thumb for me is I will block the scenes with actors and then we will light. However, there are cases where I will set a uh, an iconic image or an iconic frame or something that is very specific, like if I'm shooting in Death Valley or Monument Valley, you know, I want to capture a kind of a John Ford classic composition sure. because we as an audience have a knee-jerk um, response to that. It's part of our cultural dynamics. So I want to capture that. And in that case, I will wait for the right light. I'll compose it the way I want to and then have the characters move in the frame the way I establish that or stay still in the frame. So that's a part of what I do. Yeah. So so the um, the audience of Tips from the Top Floor is, um, is, is of course, also tech-minded. So um, can you just give us a bit of a background on what, what what's the cameras and the the tech that you work with? I know that's probably not really that interesting, but no, no, um, fascinating. I'm a complete tech head. In other words, if there's a new camera, okay, <laughs> I'm on it. Uh, there, you know, I was the first person to order. You know those little square cameras that you can adjust the, the focus. Lytro, so yeah, for, yeah, yeah. I got one hot off the press. You know, hated it. But <laughs> yeah, I, play, first, I played with one. This, I, I played with one for like a minute, and then I was, I was okay with it. I bought it. I used it. I hated it. I still yeah. have it somewhere. <laughs> the lipstick. Um, yeah. 
Um, so, Though, are, are, those, uh, uh, are those cameras on set mainly red cameras these days? Are we talking about Aries? Uh, if we're talking about uh, filmmaking, uh, Alexa is is the standard. Uh, re reds are uh, very good, and they really change the whole uh, field of uh, onset choices in terms of mechanics. Red has been getting better. Red is effectively a a computer that allows lenses. <laughs> and recording data to be attached. Right. It's designed by engineers. And uh, uh, I hope that in the future of photography, we tackle that subject of uh, design. Is it better to be designed by an engineer or is it better <laughs> to be designed by a creative-minded? I, I recently uh, had a discussion with a pilot uh, about Boeing and Airbus. And there's pretty much the same, <laughs> the same thing happening there. So yeah, this is definitely... A topic for the future of photography um but just to continue yeah. th that aspect of um the technical uh in terms of the red the red kind of began this great sojourn for all camera manufacturers panasonic canon uh and obviously ari uh red um sony has uh tried and and succeeded in many ways of making also some really beautiful cameras. They all have different kind of feels uh, and require different kind of relationships with them. Uh, we tend to use Alexis because they are very uh, operator and uh, assisted uh, operators uh, friendly. In other words, they, they feel like a camera. It's very similar to the reason right. that I love shooting with my Leica. Um, I use my basic rig as a Leica monochrome. That's the camera I know and love. Um, I have ordered a Q2 and uh, look forward to playing with that. But uh, I, you know, I tried the Sony, which is a beautiful output, but I, f I felt that camera was more designed by engineers. It was always menu-driven rather than tactile-driven, mm -hmm. which for me uh, doesn't work as well as something that I can use intuitively. So there, that's a very similar dynamic to the ARRI and the Sony on set or the RED on set. So when's the last time that you've shot a movie production on film? <laughs> How long ago was that? Wow, that's a I mean, very, I mean, we, we, we look at some no, of the, the big Hollywood productions these days, and, uh, and uh, uh, some of them at least are still being shot on film um, for various reasons. But um, how, did, how did your workflow you. change, and when did it change? Um, of course, being an early adopter of just about everything photographic, uh, I was uh, around for the shift from film to digital. And I also was very embracing of that shift. Um, I, again, got my first, you know, what was that early digital still camera? Mavica. Sony oh, Mavica. Sony Mavica. Was it the one with the, with the floppy disk? Yes, oh had one of those. Okay, yeah. Still have that. <laughs> um, and so when it became possible to use 
digital, and this will end up answering your question in a kind of a circuitous way. But when it came time to do um, or choose a digital format, we we used for a project called The Bronx is Burning. It was an eight part miniseries, so eight hours. It was uh, shot like a movie. So it was a long shoot, maybe 100 days. Um, and it was very, very complex. There's hundreds and hundreds of special effects shots. It was shot in multiple baseball stu stadiums as well. Uh, we were using three cameras uh, to capture. And it was shot in 4K. And I think I did that early. Um, I want to say 2007. Yeah, that's, um, that's what it says on IMDb. Yeah. Yeah. And that would be 4K capture, which is extremely uh, cutting edge at that time. Right. The problem we had was because we created LUTs and we applied them. And we also had a lab on a 40 foot truck with us at all times. So we would shoot, we would, at lunchtime, we would go into our lab on wheels. I think it was Technicolor's first uh, a, you know, uh, attempt at this. We would screen our dailies on a screen, and we would uh, fine-tune the color timing to match our LUTs. And um, that was super exciting. So the output was astonishing. The input, however, was extraordinarily difficult because the camera operators could not activate or turn on the camera for recording. It had to be done by a technician <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> in a tent separate from us. And so spontaneous rolling was imp impossible. It created a lot of onset tension. Uh -huh. uh, but when the results are, are kind of as good, you kind of relaxed and went, oh, my God, it's worth this pain is worth it. Um, that evolved into better camera design, etc. And those camera designs uh, became the industry standard. As that was moving forward, I did a, uh, I think this is in 2004, uh, it was called Meltdown. It was for FX. It was about nuclear terror. And I, uh, I wanted to make this very much in the style of Battle of Algiers, um, Sunday, uh, Bloody Sunday, you know, just a very documentary feel. Right. And tested every kind of camera. The studio uh, network gave gave us a lot of freedom to choose the media we wanted. We chose everything. We we tested everything from 4K, reducing the the kind of feel of 4K to 2K. We shot in 2K. We shot uh, kind of with those old uh, video cameras. Couldn't find anything. 35 millimeter cameras, uh, uh, cine cameras didn't like that. Finally arrived at a 16 millimeter pushed and found a lab that will give us out a really great processing and then we inputted it uh within so we shot it on 16 millimeter and pushed it to like at least 1200 asa that's quite a bit of a push yeah to maximize <laughs> the grain but it doesn't it doesn't end there what are the cameras i operated on and we we created a mat within the viewing system that was just maybe 
10 or 15, no, maybe 20% of the center of a 16 millimeter frame. So I had a hard oh, mat that's in there. That's what you and shot on, just to get that kind just, of grain. We, we did that for certain scenes. Okay. Certain scenes, not the whole thing. <laughs> and then blew it up and made a very high contrast black and white image out of it where it really felt great it was <laughs> yeah. so fun and raw and and um it, it was very very great visually and then of course when you uh uh integrate it into the sophistication of uh film to tape or film to digital uh, you can adjust it further and really nuance it, and uh, it was extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily happy with it. That was the last time I shot on film. All right. Jeremiah, I don't want to keep you from what you just told me earlier. Uh, you have something else to do, but I, um, I hope you will come back here. I'm pretty sure after this uh well people can hear you of course over on the future photography but we might have a few more little things to dive into here so i think if anyone has questions yeah. about all this um send them in you know how to reach the show and uh we might be lucky and get you back for another little interview could be could be possibly <laughs> okay jeremiah thank you so much for for uh, being here again everyone check out the future photography where we're wrecking up the new hosts plural hosts because um there's one more coming on the show pretty soon and um yeah thank you so much very welcome Don't skip forward, there's no sponsor on this slot today, but I'd just like to remind everyone, every one of you, of a couple of things. The First, the TFTTF July Slack Challenge is still in progress. The topic is Sky, and you have until the end of this month to participate for the chance of getting your photo reviewed here on the show. You know that at the end of a challenge, I pick three photos that I find interesting or worth talking about, and then I talk about them here in the show. This is your chance. Second, keep your questions and inputs coming. Uh, you know how much I'd love to hear from you. And if you have a question, record it. Send it my way. Or, or it doesn't even have to be a question. Something you learned, a comment like earlier. Uh, you'll find all necessary information on how to do this at tfttf.com slash voice. Third, don't forget you can support this show in a lot of different ways. And I would like to say a quick thank you to the one person who just donated, anonymously donated 10 hours of Auphonic audio processing time. Auphonic is the tool that helps make this show sound good and processing audio is like, uh, it's, it's on, a, on, a, on a time basis. And yeah, thank you, anonymous person. That's awesome. And uh, anyone else, you can find more ways to support the show at tfttf.com slash support. And last but not least, we're going to return to Kyrgyzstan next year in June 2020 because it's such an awesome place. And together with the other tours, Lake Baikal, Ethiopia, Bhutan and Cappadocia 2020, the Kyrgyzstan photo tour is open for reservations over on discoverthetopfloor.com. Thank you. Back to the show. Okay, let's talk about uh, something that happened to me. 
well, <laughs> something that I made happen to me. Uh, let's talk about memory card fraud, because that is still a thing. And um, recently, of like six weeks ago, a friend of mine enthousi enthusiastically told me how he ordered a super cheap 512 megabyte micro SD card for his camera. Like a micro SD and then an adapter and then it goes in the camera and that's usually just fine. But he said it was so cheap that he couldn't even believe it. Now, he ordered this from China or from one of the many uh, more or less anonymous um, electronics online shops there. And of course, I was really skeptical, right? I've, I've fallen prey to that uh, at least a couple of times during my digital photography time. And uh, then I thought, hey, for the sake of the greater good, let me just order uh, one or two of those cards just to see. Just, just to see. I mean, I have to update, right? I haven't uh, bought cheap off-brand whatever memory cards for ages, so... Yeah, I just wanted to see. So I ordered two cards, um, and it doesn't matter which which website is it was. But uh, one was a 512 megabytes card, and the other 256 megabyte uh, gigabyte card. Megabyte gigabyte card. I'm just looking at the post, and I wrote megabytes. Um, that is embarrassing. I'm changing this as we speak. Okay, so here we are. Um, there's the 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 512 the the uh, 256 and the cost the total cost for both of those cards together was ten dollars shipped I including shipping yeah so uh let's let's go through that experience right so the order of course i mean if you have ever ordered from from one of those online stores yeah they if, if it's small enough they will usually let you have it without shipping cost and if you want it and normally the the delivery times are in the weeks this these ones took like four weeks and if you uh, if you throw a bit more money in the pot then you'll get faster shipping but hey this was not important so i was like yeah okay let me let me get those two cards 10 bucks yeah i can probably uh, won't hurt too much if this turns out to be too good to be true which hint hint it was <laughs> so um yeah let, let me first have a quick look at f fake cards like cards that that claim to be bigger than they actually are and how that comes to be and i know uh the, there's there's specialists out there who know exactly what's happening um my information isn't the latest but i'm i'm simplifying but i think in general this is what happens a manufacturer like a proper manufacturer makes those cards but he they don't make like 8 gigabyte 16 32 64 128 gigabyte cards with different chips on them at least to a certain extent it's much much cheaper to make the same cards with the same medium to big size chip in them and then at the end of the process you test them for speed and for bad blocks and stuff and you do some magic remapping in the firmware of the card and then that's the final side. So you could have a big 128 gigabyte chip on there, but the the in the production there were there are always errors when you make chips. I mean, almost always it's hard to make those without any errors. So if uh, enough bad blocks are on that 128 gigabyte chip, they they might just declare it a 32 gigabyte chip because of the because it can error free access read and write 
32 gigabytes of those 128. So again, if you buy a, a, a card, there's a good chance that there's a bigger chip inside. It's just not using all of it. And then this, this firmware information pretty much makes sure that your camera or your card will never get anywhere close to those broken memory blocks, right? And that is, again, that's perfectly normal. And now what happens to cards that fail that or, yeah, they're, they're too bad? Um, they will probably be either scrapped by the factory or they will be sold very, very cheap. And uh, I guess this is what happened here because um, what the fraudsters will do now is they will take those cards and they will reverse the metadata, the, the firmware data on the card so that the card reports something else that's on that, that is actually available on the card. So if you manipulate that information, it'll just take a couple of seconds to turn that, I don't know, 16 gigabyte card into a 256 gigabyte cards, including all the bad blocks and everything. So I've tried it so you don't have to. And I, I got this little, I mean, it, by the way, there's a link with a, to a blog entry, so there are photos online. Um, I got these nice little packages, um, micro SD card in a little box with a micro SD to SD adapter. And then there's even a little USB uh, card reader for micro SD. So a tiny little card reader. So it looks like a good value, right? And yes, those were um, $10 together and... One was a Huawei Pro Plus 256 UHS Class 3, which is supposed to do like 30 megabytes per second write speed. And then the other, the same, but but with 512 gigabytes in size. Yeah, and then they arrived a few days ago. And um, I mean, they look they look nice. They look like the real deal. They have the Huawei logo on it. And uh, yeah, looks at least to my eyes, it looks looks okay. Um, but then, of course, what I do with every single card that I get, um, no matter where from, I will test it. And that's, yeah, that, I, I'm religious about this. A card gets tested to see if it claim if if it if it fits the the claims right. If it's fast enough, if it has the space it's supposed to have, if it doesn't have any bad blocks. And the tool I use, and this is on the Mac, by the way, um, is called F3. And there's a Windows uh, tool as well. I will, it's, it's all linked in that in that blog entry. But um, the yeah, F3 is a command line tool, but it's not too hard to do. Um, all you do is you have the <laughs> you have the well, you format the card. And then the formatting, yep, yeah, no problem. Hey, 512 gigabytes formatting uh, in in the in the disk utility, no problem whatsoever. And then on just on the command line, you use one of two tools. The first one is F3 write. So F3 write at slash volumes slash then the name of the card. That's all you need to do. And then the tool will write a a bunch of one gigabyte files to the card until it's full. So with 500 gigabytes, it writes 500 individual files, which <laughs> took quite a few hours. Um, yeah. And then in the end, it says, oh, success, all files written okay. 
average writing speed 20.81 megabytes per second. So that tool, at least in my case, it helps to um, to assess the speed of the cards. And I have a, a decent card reader to do that test. It's a Transcend card reader. Again, that one is linked from uh, from the article. And then there's a second tool. And the first one is F3 Write. And then the second one is F3 Read, which again, same thing. You start that and it reads all those individual one gigabyte files from the memory card. And it knows what's supposed to be in those files. So it uh, compares that with what it uh, with um, what it thinks it is. And then if, if it comes back without an error, it's an, an okay file. And then if it comes back with an error, with some form of corruption, well, then it's broken. And that's why, <laughs> of course, that's what happens with these kind of deals. Um, so I started uh, re- reading the things back and again, I mean, lean back and wait. That just can't take a while. And then I let it run overnight and then in the morning I came back and uh, lo and behold, after 14 point something gigabytes, the card stops, uh, stopped working. It, uh, it reported corruption reliably for the, full, for the entirety of the card. So 14 gigabytes are okay. So yeah, <laughs> honestly, I didn't expect it to be quite that bad. But I guess you get what you pay for. Oh, and and uh, 20, 20 megabytes per second write speed that it reported on. Um, I tried just to, to check. I tried the free card reader, the little USB thing that came with it. Um, that one was like half as fast. So yeah, we'll do in a in a pinch. But anyway, that is pretty much the outcome of this. So I, I did know it was it was uh, it was going to be this way, right? It's just impossible to get a card at that size for that price. Um, but yeah, well, at least it got me a good story here for the podcast. <laughs> but yeah, what's to learn from this? Um, well, first of all, buying something that is as easy to fake as a memory card is uh, from a non-reputable source is probably a bad idea. And the least I will do uh, is to make sure that I can return the card if it turns out to be a dud. In this case, <laughs> there's probably no way to return it. Uh, second, I religiously test all the cards. The moment they... They cross my doorstep, even the ones I bought in the store. I mean, worst cases, it it's it turns out to be a fake card, and you return it. But at least you'll know <laughs> you'll know how fast they are uh, in reading and writing. So that's a bonus, and uh, yeah, you have the peace of mind that that card is not the problem. And the third one is I will stick with brands. I will stick with the brand I know, and that I haven't that that hasn't let me down in the past. Now, of course, we know ownership can change. We saw that with Lexar that got uh, bought by a Chinese company. Uh, you know, but at least... And that's just the brand. That's not the manufacturing. That's the brand of it. So uh, someone is now making Lexar cards that are not the same cards that were made before under the name of Lexar. But yeah, and this might be a bit voodoo, but at least this hasn't really failed me so far. And I will not give you a specific brand recommendation, but... Um, I will typically stick with a big name brand 
that has been around for a long time and yeah that hasn't failed me yet and of course <laughs> i mean the, the general rule is if it's too good to be true it probably is so again was it worth it for me sure personally yes from the perspective of someone who makes podcasts on photography this makes for great content and it will probably help a few of you out there to avoid the same the same fate um I also have have learned something here, and it's that it's still as bad as it used to be ten years ago. Um, financially, uh, okay, I lost ten dollars. Okay, uh, but you know, even if I manage to repair the metadata on the card or the firmware on the card, which I believe is possible in some way, and even if I manage to turn it into like a proper working card that officially reports fourteen gigabytes and won't go to write on the on the bad blocks. Um, it still kind of wouldn't really work out financially, you know. At the at the time of writing this article, I can get a perfectly good sixteen gigabyte um, micro SD card for well under ten dollars, and I paid six dollars for a dodgy fourteen gigabyte card that claims to do five twelve, and that took four weeks to arrive, and for which I do not have any hope of returning it. So. Oh, at least they, t- they tossed a free micro-USB reader in the box. Um, even though they're kind of slow. But but for the majority of readers or listeners, I, I would say keep your hands off those cheap offers. Spend a few more bucks to get something decent. Uh, you can buy a 128 gigabyte UHS Class 3 microSD card from, from a decent brand for well under $30. So memory is not that expensive. But above all, Is it worth risking your valuable photos? I don't think so. All right, that was it for this episode of Tips from the Top Floor. Again, don't forget to participate in the July Slack Challenge. Keep your questions and input coming. And maybe I'll see you on one of the 2020 photo tours. And of course, as usual, those of you who actively support this show deserve to be part of it. So here we are with a list of the wonderful people over on Patreon. Jeremy Kirvin, Jeffrey Block, Alex Crozo, Bernhard Goldbach, Daniel Hertrich, Doug Gabbard, Ken Davidson, Marco Binder, Matt Armstead, Peter Morrow, Scott Wurzel, Tom Stewart, Eran Pinasov, Stu Silberman, Alan Bruce Horn, Andrew B., Anthony Bartek Boski, Chadley Clark, Ch- Chandra, Christopher Greenhill, Dave Smith, David Recht, Francesco Scaglioni, Greg Anastasi, Holger Krupp, James Trimble, Jim Caldwell, John Donahue, Josh Hopko, Jasmine AMR, Ken Birian, Kyle Nishioka, Marvin Aaron, Michael Grunert, Peter M. Spreidling, Rob Duba, Robert Goschko, Ryan Gilio, Zina Fahad, Steven Sandler, Thomas Nielsen, Trevor Palmer, and Woody. And I thank you all so much. You are the best people on earth. And if any of the other listeners want to hear your name here on the show, hey, Think about maybe joining this wonderful group of awesome people. And you can do that at tfttf.com slash Patreon. Thank you so much. Music for the show by Jeff Smith, sound partner, Hans-Peter Kagerud, publishing and Slack challenges by Release Pixie, Matt, Rastitar, Armstead, Slack imitations by Chief Invitation Officer, CIO, Rusty Russ, 
And of course, the link to get on the Slack is in the show notes. My name is Chris Marquardt. You can find me at the usual places. Go out and take amazing photos. Share them with the world. Be nice to each other. And happy shooting. <laughs>